A reading from the New Testament, Romans 11, chapter, uh, verse 25 to the end. Um, I'm a reading out of the New King James Version of the Bible, um, Romans 11. And uh, pay t- careful attention to the Word of God. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to, to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, and it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For thus is my covenant with them, when I, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these have all, ha, also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown, shown you, um, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he, may, he might have mercy to all. On... Um, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. God bless this reading. Yes, you may all be seated this morning and let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Our Father and our God, we praise You for the Word that You have revealed to us and as we come to it this morning, we come with hearts acknowledging that this indeed is Your Word, that these are not simply the the speculations or ruminations of human imaginations, but Father, Your Spirit has spoken these words through the men that recorded them in our Bibles. We know that they are breathed out by You. We know that they are living and active. We know that they are full of the power to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. And so today we pray, God, Holy Spirit be with us and help us understand the meaning and the importance and the significance of these words that we are coming to here. And so we pray, would You give, would you give great grace in our consideration of your word. And Father, by your grace, may the words of my mouth and may the, Father, may the devotion of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So again, my apologies, everyone, for once again delaying our beginning uh, of the study of the book of Jonah that I've been promising you for more than a few weeks now. 
But with all that's going on, as we've all been watching on the news in the nation of Israel these past couple weeks, and having last week just walked through the story of Jacob together in the book of Genesis, which of course is the beginning of Israel's story with, with Jacob's name being changed by God to Israel after he wrestled with God in Genesis 32. I thought that this week it would be important for us to clarify in our minds what God reveals in His Word in terms of His purposes for Israel. So this morning, we're going to take a look together at what God reveals to us here through the Apostle Paul in the great book of Romans, and especially in Romans chapter 11. And in order to do it, we're going to have to survey portions of chapter 9 and 10 also. So we're going to move pretty fast. We're going to look at the Old Testament too to set it all up and then fly at Mach 5 over the top of all of this material. So keep your fingers ready to flip some some pages because all three of these chapters in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, they all hang together to provide the context for what Paul is teaching us at the end of chapter 11 about the mystery of Israel's salvation, as he says there in verses 25 and 26, which Fred just read for us. Now first, of course, if we're going to understand what Paul is teaching in these chapters about Israel, we've got to first understand something about the history of Israel, which of course is what most of the Old Testament is all about, historically speaking. From Jacob to the exile, in the Old Testament, the people of God is Israel, and Israel is the people of God. Remember from last week, God had promised an offspring to Abraham and to Sarah in their old age. And in spite of Sarah's lifelong barrenness of womb, and God promised that through this promised offspring, there would come a multitude of offsprings who would bring God's blessings to the nations of the world. Genesis chapter 17. And the near fulfillment in Abraham's own lifetime of that promise began with the birth of Isaac, who became the father of Esau and Jacob, and Jacob who wrestled with God and was renamed Israel, became the father of twelve sons, who in God's great providence would become the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel, who eventually would be led by God out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land of Canaan, which became their land, the land of Israel, given them by God. This is critically important in terms of current events, isn't it? By divine right... Of God's sovereign decree and provision to them, they came to possess that land. That's the same land that's in dispute today between the Jews, the descendants of Jacob, and the, and the Arabic Palestinian people who claim, wrongly, but they claim that God never gave that land to the Jews, but that their false God, Allah, consigned it to the Arabs of the Muslim faith. But the Bible is God's holy breathed out inerrant word. And the Old Testament scriptures are the historical record of the Jewish descendants of Jacob and Abraham according to the flesh. And so the land 
that is rightly called the land of Israel belonged to them as their heritage from God. And, of course, in order to fully understand the Bible's teaching about Israel and what it means that Israel is the people of God, we can't stop in the Old Testament, can we? We have to press on into the fulfillment of God's revelation in the New Testament. And the New Testament clearly teaches and reveals that there is this, there is this development organically from Old Testament to New Testament in terms of how God defines Israel as His chosen covenant people. And that's what Paul is talking about all throughout the book of Romans. And in chapter 11, he uses this picture of an olive tree as, as an illustration of this organic development of the people of God who are Israel. So in terms of understanding all of that today, what's important for us to understand about the Old Testament era is this. During the time frame between Abraham and Jacob and the birth of Christ, the whole history of Israel, God, during that Old Testament time, reckoned the world essentially according to three groups of people. And they were this, in God's reckoning. First, the Gentile nations. And that just means every other nation in the world apart from the one nation of Israel. The Gentiles were the pagan, unbelieving nations of the world. And then secondly, there was the nation of Israel. Those descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who God led out of Egypt and, and into the promised land and constituted as a nation under Him when He gave them the law at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. So number two, there were the Gentile nations. Or number one, there were the Gentile nations. Number two, there was Israel, the nation. And then number three, there was true Israel. Authentic Israel in the Old Testament, which was a group of people within the nation of Israel that were actually faithful believers in God. As opposed to most of the nation of Israel and its people who were, by and large, unfaithful to God throughout their history. So, so lock that in your brains first, right? Three groups in God's reckoning. The Gentile nations, the nation of Israel, most of whom were unfaithful, and then within that... True Israel, which was a faithful remnant who truly loved and feared and followed the Lord. So, in the Old Testament, even though the nation of Israel was, was so often, and if you've read the Old Testament, it's not hard to find a million places where this is shown, they're so often just indulging in immorality and idolatry, and apostasy, and worldly and ungodly rebellion against their God. But even so, God always kept for Himself a faithful remnant of Israelites who truly trusted Him, and who would not bow to the godlessness and idolatry and worldliness that was all around them. And just... There's a lot of places where the Old Testament teaches that, but just one classic expression of that remnant of true and faithful Israel is given in 1 Kings chapter 19, where Elijah, the prophet, says to God, 
as he's looking around at all the sin of the people of Israel, that, that Elijah is very zealous for God's glory to be vindicated because so many of the people of Israel have forsaken God, forsaken the covenant, and, and plunged themselves into all of this worldliness and idolatry, and they've been killing the prophets even, that have called them to repentance, and they were trying to kill Elijah even, and God replied to all of this, and told Elijah that God was indeed going to pour out judgment on all of that and on all of the unfaithful people of Israel, but that even as he was preparing to do that, he would also mercifully preserve a remnant from among them. Here's what he said to Elijah, I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him, the false god, Baal. That's the, the remnant. And this, this remnant of true believers in Israel who didn't bow the knee to Baal but remained faithful to God even when everyone else all around them was indulging in all of the godlessness and idolatry, that remnant is the true Israel of the Old Testament period. And that includes all kinds of people, right? Like David and, and Joash and Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and lots and lots of others. And godly women also. Faithful women like Sarah and Deborah and Hannah and lots and lots of, of others. So in the Old Testament, there were those who were, as Paul will put it in the New Testament, circumcised in the flesh only. So they were a part of the nation of Israel. They were a part of what God called His people. But their hearts were hard. And they were unfaithful. And then within them, there was a smaller number who weren't just circumcised according to the flesh, but also, as Paul says, had their hearts circumcised and purified and cleansed. They loved God. They feared God. They lived faithfully for God. So now follow that paradigm forward all the way to the time of Jesus when the faithful remnant of Israel, true Israel, in the time of Jesus included godly believers in God like Simeon and Anna, according to Luke's Gospel. Remember? Simeon was a righteous and devout man. And the Holy Spirit, Luke says, was upon him. And when the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that before he died, he would see the Messiah that Israel had so long been waiting for, when the Holy Spirit revealed that to him, Simeon rejoiced. And then when Simeon came into the temple and he saw Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus, he blessed God. He poured out praise. He recognized that this child is my Savior, my King, my Messiah, the Christ. He believed that Jesus was the promised one. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, true Israel, right, the, the believing ones, the faithful remnant, they were visible as those Jewish disciples who believed in Him, who trusted Him, who followed Him. But all of those who rejected Jesus were not true Israel. Even if they belonged to national Israel and were ethnically were Jewish. 
And that, of course, people who were ethnically Jewish but unbelieving in their hearts, that included all kinds of people like, like, the, like the leaders of Israel, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, so many of them were hard in their hearts towards God. So they were Jews physically, but they were not true Israel. Now this is what Paul makes very clear in the book of Romans. Listen to chapter 2 where he says, No one is a Jew who is, who is one merely outwardly. He's talking about national Jews, but inwardly they're hard-hearted. And he says, you're not truly a Jew then. You're not true Israel. Nor, he says, is circumcision just outward and physical, but a true Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not just by the letter, not just outward conformity to the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then, keeping in mind true Israel versus just national Israel, even more massively significant, the New Testament teaches us that when Jesus Christ came, He was both the true Messiah that Israel had been waiting for, and himself, the true Israelite, the true and ultimate seed of Abraham that God had promised back in Genesis chapter 17, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Remember, God had promised to give Abraham an offspring who would become many offsprings and, and, and would bless the nations of the world. And Paul teaches in Galatians 3 that in the immediate time of Abraham, that meant Isaac, but ultimately in God's purposes, that meant Jesus. Paul says it explicitly, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, your offspring, who is Christ. So, when God made that original promise to Abraham and Sarah, it was partly fulfilled in the birth of Isaac, but it was ultimately fulfilled in the ultimate offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. And then, even more massively significant, Paul will go on to say that now that this true Messiah has come, and now that this true offspring of Abraham, Jesus, has been born, now in the new covenant, true Israel is defined by God as not just ethnically Jewish people who are believing and faithful followers recognizing Jesus as their Messiah, but, Paul says, anyone from any nation in the world who believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and follows Him. That's just what Paul says, listen. And he's speaking in Galatians chapter 3 to Gentiles, not Jews, Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus and they were, they were populating churches in the province of Galatia and Paul says to them, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ and now there is neither Jew nor Greek. That distinction's over. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, he says to the Gentile Christians, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Massively 
paradigm-shifting revelation in the New Testament in terms of what true Israel is. And the way that all of this becomes worked out historically in the New Testament era is recorded for us in the book of Acts, isn't it? On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, true Israel, believing people of God, was at that time in Acts 2, a, a group of Jewish believers in Jesus as their true Messiah gathered together in Jerusalem who were then taken by the Holy Spirit and, and, and formed into the core, into the nucleus of the New Testament church. The Holy Spirit, remember, was poured out on these Jewish believers, this faithful remnant, this core of true Israel, and they became the New Covenant Church. They became commissioned by Jesus to go and be His witnesses to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And then, when they did that, what happened? Before long, through God's ministry, through Peter, and then through Paul, Gentiles started to become a part of that group of true Israel, of the church of God. All one in Christ Jesus. All Abraham's offspring, according to Paul. All heirs, according to the promises that God made in the Old Covenant to true Israel, according to Paul, regardless of whether they were ethnically Jewish or Gentile, just as Paul says in Galatians 3, because through living faith, they were all in Christ Jesus together. They were all one in Christ who is the true Israelite and the true and ultimate offspring of Abraham. See, and this is so massively important, see, in terms of understanding what is the relationship between Israel and the church. If the question is, pay, follow me here, if the question is, What's the relationship between Israel and the church? Then the answer absolutely depends on whether you're talking about national Israel or true Israel, the believing faithful remnant. Now, if you're talking about national Israel, there's a huge distinction between Israel and the church, right? Even as much in the Old Testament, there was a, a huge distinction between national Israel and the remnant of true Israel. One believed God and the other one didn't. One lived in faithfulness to God and the other one didn't. It's faith, right, that makes all the difference and the massive distinction. But if you're talking about the remnant, if you're talking about the faithful, believing, true Israel of the Old Testament, then once we get into the New Testament, there is no distinction between true Israel and the church according to God's reckoning because in Christ, through faith, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Because if someone's in Christ, no matter what nation they come from, they are His and they are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise, according to God's Word. Because the true Israel of the Old Testament, that believing remnant became the core nucleus of the church in the New Covenant, which then became composed of both Jews and Gentiles. I really hope this is making sense. I know it's a lot. And it's hard to grasp. But Paul really helps us in Romans 11 significantly by, by just painting a picture and using the, the, the analogy of an olive tree here in the book of Romans. 
The olive tree is, is Israel, planted by God in the Old Covenant. The people of God. And in the Old Testament, that tree had faithful branches, fruitful branches, and it had unfruitful branches. Well, here in Romans 11 and verse 17, Paul teaches that in the New Testament, the old the, the tree that had unbelieving branches, those unbelieving branches were broken off the tree. Those were Jewish people who didn't believe, who rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And then Paul says, and he's, he's talking about Gentile believers in Rome, he says that there are believing Gentiles, he calls them branches from a wild olive tree, a foreign plant, who got grafted in to the cultivated olive tree that, that had the dead branches of unbelieving Jewish people removed from it. And I want you to understand two things about that illustration of the tree that Paul does not say. First, Paul does not say that the tree that God planted in the Old Testament got chopped down to the ground and then a new tree got planted in its place. That's not what Paul says at all. It's not as though God removed Israel entirely and then planted the church in its place. That's not what happened. But also notice what Paul doesn't say. Secondly, he doesn't say that God left the Old Testament tree of Israel in place and then planted a second tree alongside it. And that he has different purposes for those different trees. That's not what Paul says. There's a lot of Christians who believe that, but that's not what Paul teaches. It's not the picture Paul paints. What Paul teaches, and he doesn't just teach it here, he teaches it in Ephesians and in Galatians and in Hebrews. Peter also teaches it. He teaches that there's only one tree, Old Testament and New Testament. Only one people of God, Old Testament, New Testament. The same tree, Israel, the people of God, planted by God, exists across the divide between Old Testament and New Testament. And when we get to the New Testament... The dead branches of unbelieving Jews get removed and that which remains after that pruning is true Israel and then Gentile believers in Jesus get grafted into that same tree which is true Israel. Not two separate trees. Not a new tree in the place of the old one that got chopped down. One tree. Planted by God in the Old Covenant, pruned of dead branches in the New, Gentile branches grafted in in the New. True Israel. Jews and Gentiles in Christ now. Distinct from national Israel, which did not and still does not believe that Jesus is their true Messiah. Now, that all brings up some really, really important questions. One especially, which comes to our minds, especially when we turn on the news and we see national Israel, unbelieving Jewish people in the Middle East, we see them at war right now. And the question is biblically, what does all this biblical reality about Israel mean for national Israel now in terms of God's purposes for them? They're branches that have been broken off because of their unbelief. Does that mean God is completely finished with them? 
Does that mean that they have forever and completely forfeited any hope of receiving any blessing from God? And that is precisely the question that Paul takes up and answers in Romans 9 through 11. So I, this, I know this is a lot of background setup, I know, but we're going to hit the afterburners here, so strap in. In the opening chapters of Romans, in the first eight chapters of Romans, one of the main points that Paul makes is that Jewish people, ethnic Jews, right, national Jews, they're not guaranteed God's salvation just because they're ethnic Jews. That's what they thought. They thought they were just entitled to God's blessing because of their genealogy. And Paul says, now you can't just lean on ethnicity. You can't just lean on all the privileges that God granted to the nation back in the Old Testament. You can't just lean on any works that you've done and, and, and assume that because of any of that, God's going to give you salvation and eternal life. No, the key is what? Not any of that. The key is faith. Justification by God comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. All who believe in Jesus are the children of Abraham, and therefore the children of God. And then Paul also in Romans makes this other hugely important point, which is this, that, that as much as that's true, that the, that the Jews can't think that they receive God's blessing just because they're Jewish, as much as that's true, the second all-important point is none of God's promises ever, 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 ever fail. Because... We've seen it the last three weeks, haven't he? He's faithful no matter what. And that raises some big questions then, see? What about Israel? What about national Israel to whom God made all those promises back in the Old Testament? They've rejected Jesus as their true Messiah. What happens to them now? What's become of God's promises to them in light of their rejection of Jesus? That's what Paul is addressing in chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans. Look at the beginning of chapter 9. Paul is, in the beginning of chapter 9, he's in anguish in his heart, in his soul, he says in verse 2. And the reason is because in verse 3 of his kinsmen according to the flesh, ethnic national Jews who have been cut off from Christ and accursed because of their unbelief in Jesus. And it breaks Paul's heart because he's Jewish himself. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9, Paul, Paul ponders all of the great privileges, all the great blessings that God had given to them. They're Israelites. To them belong adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, from the Jewish race, according to the flesh, came Jesus, came the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. So now what? See? Now that they've rejected Him, what's to become of them? Well, Paul's answer begins in verse 6 of chapter 9. It's not as though God's word has failed. Because God's word can't fail and God can't be anything but faithful to what he promised. So how is it that, that he promised them all these things and now they've been cut off and accursed? How, is, how does this all work? Because, same verse, Romans 9, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are, of, uh, are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, th- this is the distinction between national Israel and true believing Israel. You don't belong to true Israel just because you're a national Jewish Israelite. And he explains it very clearly in verse 8. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted as offspring. The true descendants of Abraham, the true children of God, aren't the ones of the flesh. They're They're not the ethnic offspring of Abraham. They're the children of promise. They're the ones who believe God and live by faith in God. Those are the ones who receive the blessings, including trusting and following Jesus as their true Messiah. Now, hang in there. In verses 14 through 23 of chapter 9, Paul builds on that reality. And he explains that salvation, God's eternal favor, was never some kind of birthright that they could just count on because of their biological connection to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Any more than Esau, remember, could count on the birthright just because he was the firstborn. By earthly accounting, he should have got it, but by God's sovereign election, it was Jacob who got the birthright instead. Because God's not constrained by biology or any other earthly or human factor. God has mercy on whoever God wants to have mercy. Which, that has massive implications on the salvation of every single human being because it all depends on God's sovereign election and mercy and not not on our will or not on our works. But stay with me here. Jump down to verse 30 at the the end of chapter 9. Paul answers the, well, what's up with that question? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, national Israel, the Jewish people, they pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching it. What's up with that? The the Gentiles weren't even even trying to live according to God's law, and they get the, the righteousness that comes through faith. And Israel was pursuing the law, but they failed to reach it. What's up with that? Well, here's the answer. Verse 32 It's because what national Israel pursued, they didn't pursue by faith. Any obedience to God's law that they achieved was not faithful obedience, it was legalistic. That's exemplified, isn't it, by by the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Outside of the cup, conformity, but inner unbelief and greed and hypocrisy. And that... That unbelieving hardness of heart, that's exactly why they stumbled over Jesus as their Messiah and refused to believe in Him and rejected Him. And so Paul's point now from from verses 33 all the way down to chapter 10, verse 21, his point is that while hard-hearted, unbelieving national Israel was stumbling over Jesus, the Messiah... Gentiles were now, through faith in Jesus, coming streaming and flooding into the kingdom of God. But remember, while Paul is rejoicing about that, the Gentiles are streaming in through faith in Jesus, 
his heart is still absolutely breaking that national Jews are not streaming in through faith in Jesus. And so in verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And he, of course, he's talking about ethnic Jews, isn't he? Who have rejected Jesus. And Paul says, I want them. I'm praying for them to be saved. That's what he wants. For ethnic Jewish people who have rejected Christ because of the hardness of their hearts, to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's what Paul wants. Pause. Hopefully, that's what we all want too. Hopefully, there is not a single blood-bought, redeemed, regenerated Christian alive who wishes any ill on Jewish people or revels somehow in their suffering because of their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. Because none of us deserved anything any more than any of them. Anyone who deserved everlasting hell, and that's all of us, but was freely given everlasting salvation by God who has mercy on whoever He will have mercy, anyone who's given that wants nothing more than for Jewish people to receive that same grace and that same salvation and that same everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. And hopefully we all shudder, hopefully we all weep when Jewish people are suffering at the hands of godless terrorists. And hopefully we weep when they're killed without having living faith in Jesus as their Messiah because He's the only way and He's the only truth and He's the only life. He's the only way to peace with God the Father. Listen, Paul was absolutely desperate for unbelieving ethnic national Israelites, Jewish people to be saved eternally. And the fact that Paul wanted that and prayed for that means what? it means he believed that it was possible. He didn't believe that their having been cut off, that their branches having been removed from the olive tree, he didn't believe that that meant that they couldn't ever be saved and grafted back in. And that's what Romans 11 is all about. Verse 1, you good? You with me here? Again, (laughs) I We're flying fast over a lot of territory. Romans 11, verse 1. Paul, desperately wanting, desperately praying for national Israel, unbelieving ethnic Jews to be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, asks, I ask then, has God rejected His people? And he means national Israel. That's who he's praying for, right? That's who he's talking about in all three of these chapters. Ethnic Jews. That's who he's calling God's people here. Has God rejected them? What's his answer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? By no means. Praise God. This is the whole whole message. This is the whole theme of chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 10. Paul makes this, this biblical distinction that we've been seeing between True Israel, believing faithful Israel, and national Israel. Unbelieving, hard-hearted Israel. Paul's terminology for that distinction here is the remnant. That's the true believing Israel. And the hardened. 
hardened in heart. That's national, ethnic only, unbelieving Israel. You remember what God told Elijah back in 1 Kings 19? That, that many unbelieving Israelites would get a, were going to succumb to God's judgment because of their idolatry, but that God would preserve a remnant of 7,000 because they didn't bow the knee to Baal. Remember? Well, Paul's quoting that here in verses 2 through 5. And his point is that just like in the days of Elijah, there is now in Paul's day in the New Covenant a believing remnant of ethnic Jewish people. They've been chosen by grace, Paul says in verse 5. And they believe. And then in contrast to that remnant is the rest of national Israel. See that in verse 7? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They failed to obtain salvation. The elect obtained it. Those whom God chose, Romans 9, to grant faith in Jesus to, but the rest of national Israel were hardened. So, in contrast to this this remnant of believing Jewish people who by God's sovereign grace have accepted Jesus as their Messiah and been saved, In contrast is the rest of national Israel, ethnic Jews, who have not been given that grace or faith in Jesus, but who have been sovereignly hardened by God in their unbelief. And in verse 8, Paul explains very, very clearly what it means that they've been hardened by God. He's quoting from Isaiah. He says, as it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor and eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Down to this very day, Paul says. God sovereignly dulled the spiritual senses of national national Israel so that they would stumble over Jesus as their Messiah and reject Him. And here in verses 9 and 10, Paul now now invokes David in, in Psalm 69. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they can't see and bend their backs forever. So, Romans 11, verse 11, talking about national Israel, ethnic Jews, who God has hardened because of the rejection of Jesus. Paul asks about them. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall. Stumbling means what Paul has already said it means. It means that in their unbelieving hardness of heart, they've stumbled over Jesus. They've rejected Him as their Messiah. And here, Paul's question is, does that stumbling mean a complete falling? Does their rejection of Jesus mean that national Israel, that ethnic Jews, will forever and completely from this point on be rejected by God? That's the question. What's the answer? By no means. Does it mean that? Praise God. So you got it so far? You see Paul's thinking here? By no means does the hardening of national ethnic Jews because of their rejection of Jesus mean that God is utterly done with them and has completely rejected them. By no means, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Rather, here's what it does mean, through their trespass, through their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
Now, he's not saying that God is petty like we are, petulant like we can be when we do things in order to make people jealous. When we do it, it's to make people suffer so that we can revel in their misery. God's not like that. God's never petty. God's purpose in making Israel jealous by freely giving to the Gentiles what He'd always promised to the Jews is that through doing that, the Jews would eventually come to embrace what the Gentiles have also been given because they're humble now and they say, it doesn't depend on me or my nationality or my good works or my obedience to the law. It just depends on God who has mercy. And if He can be merciful to the Gentiles, maybe He'll be merciful to me if I call out to Jesus. That's why God did it. So that eventually they would come to faith in Jesus by forsaking their own pride and their sense of entitlement and their ethnic status and the fact that they were related to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and, and God would bring them instead to rely just like the Gentiles had fully on His grace and the merits of Jesus through faith alone. You see God's plan? This is a lot, I know, and I hope it's making sense. The bottom line is just that this is what God has done. He sovereignly ordained that ethnic Jews who had all this national pride, God ordained to harden them in their unbelief and, and then soften the hearts of the Gentiles and freely give them salvation through faith in Jesus in order to make the Jews jealous so that eventually He might shatter their national pride and make them as dependent on Jesus alone through faith alone as the undeserving Gentiles are, so that in time He might restore national Israelites, ethnic Jews, to eternal salvation through faith in Christ. So then, verses 13 through 20, God says to the Gentiles, who have come to saving faith in Jesus while the Jews are hardened, he says, don't be arrogant. Don't think you're better than them. Verse 18, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You didn't earn it. Jesus earned it for you. Don't be arrogant towards the branches. The branches are the Jewish people, right? That that were cut off the tree because of their rejection of Christ, so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. And God's purpose is that through all of that, ultimately He would bring unbelieving national Jews to saving faith, even as He brought Paul. The Gentiles only ever got the eternal blessings of God by grace, through faith, as a gift. And because we've all been grafted into the one tree of His true people, true Israel, All of those, whatever nationality or ethnicity we are, by that way, have faith in Christ as our Savior. None of us can boast. And God, verse 23 says, has the power. If He's done that for us, if He's grafted wild plants into this tree that He planted, He certainly has the power to graft the natural branches back in to re-include the Jews. And in verse 25, this is what Paul calls a great mystery. It doesn't mean it's incomprehensible. It doesn't mean it's unable to be understood. It just means 
Nobody knew, but this was God's plan all along. And now it's been revealed in the New Testament Scriptures, and it's marvelous that God hardened the Jewish people in order to graciously bring masses of Gentiles flooding into His kingdom so that in this way He might then restore the hardened, unbelieving Jews and graciously bring them back in too and regraft them and give them life even though they were dead. A partial hardening has come on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And of course, as we, if you've seen it all, the, the context of these chapters makes it very obvious that, that when he talks about Israel there as being partially hardened, he's talking about Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. The one his heart aches for in chapter 9, the ones he's praying for in chapter 10 and longing for them to be saved. It's ethnic Jews who have been hardened, but he says clearly that that hardening is partial. It's not complete. There are still Jews who do believe in Jesus like Paul himself, and more, that hardening is not only partial, it's also not permanent. Paul sees an end of this hardening in sight, right? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And that fullness of the Gentiles doesn't just mean until all of the Gentiles who God has elected to be saved get saved, then then there will be something left over for the Jews. It doesn't mean that. It means much more specifically in Paul's mind The fullness of the Gentiles means the the fullness of the blessings that the Gentiles have been graciously given by God to receive. And in the context of all of this, that means nothing short of all of the massive eternal blessings that God promised to Abraham and to his offspring, to true Israel all throughout the Old Testament. In God's eternal purposes, He intended all of the nations of the world to become beneficiaries of all of His blessings. And promises which were spoken to Abraham. That doesn't mean every single human being, of course. But it means a mass of people from every tribe and every nation who by faith came to Jesus for salvation. And when they did, whatever nation they were from, they wouldn't be second class citizens. In God's eternal kingdom, just because they weren't Jewish, they would, even as Gentiles, be be beneficiaries of the fullness of God's blessings. By His grace through faith, right? If you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ, and now there's neither Jew nor Greek. And if you're Christ, you're Abraham's offsprings and heirs according to the promise. Every promise, all of it. Remember from Galatians 3? That's what the fullness of the Gentiles means. And here Paul's saying that at some point in God's eternal and gracious and merciful purposes, the Gentiles coming to receive the fullness of God's blessings and promises to true Israel, that that's then going to lead to and result in Israel being restored. The hardening of unbelieving, hard-hearted, Christ-rejecting Jews will be removed. And they will be saved. Not each and every single one but also not just a small remnant of Jews, 
a large mass of ethnic Jews coming to saving faith in Jesus, even as a large mass of Gentiles have come into the fullness of salvation and, and everlasting blessing through the same faith in the same Jesus. And verse 26 is the, is, the, is the penultimate statement of all of it. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In this way, by this sovereignly ordained means of hardening unbelieving Israel and bringing the Gentile nations into the fullness of God's blessings, so too shall Israel, national Israel, ethnic Jews who have, who have been hardened in their unbelief, so too shall they be brought. Countless many of them, even as Paul longs for and prays for, in these chapters they will be brought to saving faith and their sins will be put away through their true Messiah and Savior, Jesus Christ. It only makes sense that it means national Israel because in verse 28, Paul says to the Gentile Christians in Rome that, that presently, because the Jews are rejecting the gospel by which the Gentiles have been saved, presently, this, this Israel that he's talking about is their enemy, according to the gospel. So he doesn't mean Jews and Gentiles somehow here. He means unbelieving Jews. They're your enemies according to the gospel because they're enemies of the gospel. But, Paul says, as regards election, God's eternal, sovereign, gracious, loving purposes for the Jewish people, they're beloved by God for the sake of their forefathers because of his faithfulness to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so Paul sees in the greatness of God's eternal sovereign purposes and unfathomable divine mercy and love, he sees the answer to his desperate prayer all the way up in chapter 10 for his kinsmen in the flesh to be saved. And in all of it, all of the great mysterious eternal purposes of God now revealed. All of the unsearchable wisdom of God in, in orchestrating all of history to this marvelous and merciful end. All of the great faithfulness of God. All of the unfathomable love and mercy and grace of God. All of it now is, after Paul's taught it to us, welling up in his soul like a volcano of wonder and worship. And it just erupts out of Paul in this torrent of blessing and praise to God in verse 33. It's blowing his whole mind. Oh, the depth. Right? Of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Can you believe what God did and is doing and will do? How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. Who would have ever scripted this but God Himself? Who could have guessed? Who would ever know the mind of the Lord? Who could have ever been God's counselor and say, hey, you know what you ought to do? Have you thought of this? Oh, no. 
God is marvelously, majestically wise and merciful here. Who has given a gift to God that He might be repaid? Now, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To, to Him be glory forever, Paul says. And that, Christians, that same sense of wonder and of awe at the great wisdom and mercy of God, that's got to dominate our hearts and our minds too. As we think about the people of Israel, especially in a time like this where in God's providence there is much suffering in Israel. They've, they've continued to reject Jesus as their Messiah. Their hearts are still hard in unbelief, and yet still in the depth of God's steadfast love. They're beloved by Him for the sake of their forefathers. And He has ordained a time when the hardening will be removed and many hearts will be softened and humbled and many eyes will be opened and many souls will be saved as they see and cry out to Jesus as their true Messiah as the true seed of Abraham, as their everlasting King and Savior and Lord, as their only hope. And so, as you pray for Israel, pray most earnestly for what Paul prayed. Pray for justice in the Middle East. Absolutely. Pray for mercy for all those who suffer. And pray most earnestly for the eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone that God is, is prophesying and proclaiming to pour out on Jewish people here. Pray that perhaps all of this treachery and all of this suffering and hardship might drive them to their only hope who is Christ. Pray that God might through this terrorism and through all of this confusing and uncertain stuff that's going on in the world that God might glorify himself by bringing masses of unbelieving Jews to faith in Jesus and usher in his kingdom let's pray together as we're out of time today our God and our Father, we feel, we feel what Paul feels here at the, at the end of chapter 11. We feel overwhelmed and we feel full of wonder and full of awe because of your great and unsearchable and inscrutable wisdom and the marvelous majesty and mercy of your ways. And so, Father, we pray this morning that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Father, for mercy for all who are suffering in the Middle East. And we pray for your mercy on the Jewish people and not just for their temporal suffering, but, Father, for their souls and for their eternal life. Would you open their eyes? Would you soften their hearts? And, Father, would you give them the faith to call out to Jesus because we know that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And so, Father, be merciful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can you turn to page 16 with me? And let's once again stand as we praise our God and sing His praises with wonder and awe in our hearts.